0: And welcome to the NC podcast. My name is Natasha Collins, and I am the host and founder of NC Real Estate, which includes its members club for landlords and property investors to come and build profitable property portfolios that completely align with their goals. If you haven't been to my website yet, I don't know why not, but you need to. Head to ncrealestate.co.uk. Check out all of my resources. There's tons of them. There's freebies, there's a blog, there's obviously the podcast that you listen to. So make sure that you head on over to ncrealestate.co.uk. And if you get a pop-up when you get to my website, don't just ignore it and click X. Type your name in, type your email address. Let me send you my free stuff because it's awesome. And you're gonna want it if you want to grow your property Portfolio, so make sure that you're doing that. Today, I am so excited. I've got Chris Moore with me. Chris is a heritage specialist, charter surveyor, project manager, owner of Reddit Refurbishment, researcher, and property investor. Chris, hi.
1: Hey, how are you doing?
0: Good, thank you. How are you?
1: Yes, not too bad. Not too bad. Thank you, Neil.
0: Oh, I'm so glad to have you. We're going to have a detailed discussion about a part of the industry which I don't talk too much about. And we need to have frank conversation around heritage property, listed property, construction. And let's get all of that in because I know you're a specialist in this side of things. So very firstly, how did you get started in the property industry?
1: Well, um, I got started in construction almost by accident. A bit like how I got started in the property industry, really. But I was originally, I wanted to be an English teacher. That's the absolute honest truth <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I started doing a degree in English and um, I realised that uh, uh, it probably wasn't for me and I managed to um, switch using some of my credit to the um, Surveying Construction Architecture course mm-hmm. So um, and then I carried that forward and I started working for a small surveying practice and um, eventually became a quantity surveyor, uh, later chartered uh quantity surveyor and um yeah and then i've i've sort of um grown my businesses and um yeah how i got into the property industry that was completely by accident uh in terms of how i became a landlord because i didn't sort of set out to be a landlord i sort of just became one uh through a construction project that we were doing um which i can talk about a bit more if you want me to Mm -hmm. but um yeah okay well basically um my uh wife had a property uh my wife is a genius. She did a very clever thing many years ago. She had some inheritance money. And when she went to university, when she was, you know, whatever age she is, 18, 19, she um, used her inheritance money to buy a a HMO in the town that she was going to university. So in Southampton. Mm -hmm. So she became an undergraduate student and a landlord at the same time incredibly clever of her because she basically was managed to sort of pay her way for uni by being a landlady
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and um anyway she when she left there and moved to London it became difficult to manage because obviously it's so far away and um well you know what students are like as tenants there <laughs> they take a, maybe a little bit more management than perhaps others and um so we had met and I had sold my place and we were renting in Canterbury and a friend of ours had a property who um, he was trying to um, sell it, but it sort of became almost uh unmortgageable. But we came to a, an agreement whereby we could buy it from him in installments uh, without using credit and um, he would keep his name on the title um, and we used the money from the Southampton flats and my house that we'd sold. And managed to do a deal with him, and um, yeah, after I think it was about eighteen months, we paid him off uh, in full. And uh, what it was that we bought was a a beautiful Victorian building, uh, terrace building, but it was was heavily run down, and it wasn't listed, but it was in a conservation area, and it required a lot of um, work doing to it to bring it back up to standard because he'd sort of he'd been very generous with his tenants, and his tenants were all um, artists and. um, uh what were some of the other ones there i don't know but they were all occupations that were a bit sort of you don't hear very often and what it was he was only charging a peppercorn rent because he felt like the place was so run down that he couldn't um charge them the full going rate but what really was happening was these people were people that were working and earning i think most of them were earning very good salaries in london and they were using it as sort of like a holiday cottage a second property okay yeah yeah so we we basically went in and we, we refurbished it all to building reg standards and um we inherited these tenants and then one by one they all left and then we were left with one one tenant in the building, so we lived in some of it the, and then we had another tenant and then we turned the top uh flat into uh assisted accommodation so uh yeah that's how I became uh sort of um, inducted into the property industry having already been in the construction industry for a few good years so
0: and so when you got into the construction industry how did you yeah. decide that a quantity surveyor was the type of surveyor you wanted to be and for everybody listening who doesn't know what a quantity surveyor is what is a quantity well, surveyor
1: well a quantity surveyor um i think in america they call them construction accountants mm-hmm. so it's, it's essentially the the the, the 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 professional that handles all the budgets, the finances. So it can be working for the client on the client side, or it can be working for the contractor doing all the accounts for the subcontractors and the buying and all that sort of stuff. So um, I think the most contentious issue really on any project is always the finances. (laughs) So the QS is always the one that gets it in the neck because, you know, you haven't made enough profit or uh, (laughs) the client is saying you're overcharging them or you're not charging enough, you know, so you you could never win basically as the qs um and you know it it, i became a qs i'll be brutally honest with you it's 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 not a um it's not overly great thing but the reason i became a qs was because when i was doing my undergraduate course it was on the endangered species list and the government back then used to pay your tuition fees if you're if you were doing a course that led to you becoming a professional that the country needed Okay. of course when the recession happened in sort of oh seven oh eight, i think that was one of the first things they got rid of <laughs> um you know but I, I think they are still doing it again now and of course i've got a leaflet here actually to hand the citb they actually um do a lot of grants now okay. uh, still do all the sort of apprenticeships that i've managed through the years um and even my research is all paid for by the citb so there are still grants out there even if you can't get from the government
0: and the CITB are
1: the construction industry training board okay so if you are you know it, it may benefit some people that if you if you as a developer or as just as a general contractor depending on what type of contractor you are you have to legally be registered with the CITB and they take a percentage i think it's 1 or 2% of your gross um, national insurance uh, quarterly return um, and some of your CIS return as well for your subcontractors. So they take a, a small percentage, but then you can get grants back for apprentices. You can do undergraduate courses, postgraduate courses, all sorts of different things. Um, and you can do all the health and safety courses as well if you want to do that first aid. I mean, the list is, is, is really huge. Um, so you can, I think you can still uh, opt to become a member of the CITB, but if you are of a certain turnover and a certain number of staff, uh, in a certain trade, then you are legally mandated to be a member of CITB, if that makes sense.
0: Okay. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I get that. I get yeah. that. Okay. So you did you join the construction industry? You fell into being a quantity surveyor. Then yep. what happened from there? How did you then pivot and start doing the heritage buildings, the listed buildings? Was that something that was involved in that?
1: Well, the uh, I've always had an interest in history and mm-hmm. uh, building conservation. Um, I've always found that um, those projects are, are just generally more interesting, anyway. But I've I've also, if you was to say, I mean, I, I've always looked at my skills and my CV of the courses I want to do and the experience I want to get as trying to make myself as employable as possible, <laughs> basically.
0: <laughs> yeah, fair.
1: <laughs> you know, because you don't know what's around the corner, and. Um, it's it's you know it's skills is what it's all about and experience and stuff like that. So what what I tried to do was look long term at the problems of the of the future, if you like. And if the construction site is to be more, um, you know, more um, what's the word turned into more of a factory where everything's built off site. Um, I mean, in Australia, they use bricklaying robots now to <laughs> build houses. You've got uh, BIM as well. You know, yeah. you've got a lot of stuff like that that's ongoing in the construction industry, but all of those things, to a degree, you couldn't really attach to uh, conservation and you know listed buildings and mm-hmm. and historic buildings. So I've always found that, um, for me personally, uh, because those buildings require so much unique attention that they would probably require more human. Uh, requirements rather than software or um you know robots and I don't know what the future holds for that sort of thing but mm-hmm. you know the, there's no way you can process um and do every, you know one shoe fits all for um older buildings because you, they just don't work like new build residential or whatever like that so i just i found it more interesting i've just always found that there seems to be a lack of uh knowledge and skills in that area just generally speaking talking to people uh, that a lot of people shy away from working on historic buildings and things like that so I just sort of went feet first in the deep end and, and and you know I've worked on lots of historic buildings and I've since obviously done lots of courses and things so it just generally interests me more and it's just something that um, I think uh, as well as uh, an employability it can also be more profitable because if you've got the skills and the knowledge and the labor and you can do a good project like that you you get known for doing it and mm-hmm. it means you get more projects so it, it's sort of <laughs> more of a commercial reason as well as a more of an interest reason as well
0: mm-hmm. and then as well as doing that and as well as specializing you do the research and you do the tutoring yeah. as well right
1: yeah yeah i have been um at uh, ucm and at the university of kent um but that my research which uh, again is paid for by the citv i'm legally obliged to plug them at all times for my research i read the paperwork the other day. <laughs> plug 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 um, and, uh, yeah, I find that very fascinating. It, it all came about because we had done a significant uh, restoration project to uh, a castle in Kent called Walmer Castle. And it was built by uh, Henry VIII when um, the England broke away from Europe for the first time. And um, there's lots of parallels, I tell you. I won't go into it. <laughs> and um, it, was, it just fascinated me as a building so much. And uh, when I um, uh, did my master's, I did a, a case study on that particular project. And then I went to the University of Kent with a proposal to do some research into that castle and some of the other ones that Henry the had built at the same time. And through the uh, literature review and speaking to, um, you know, my um, mentors at university, it quickly became um, known that there, there isn't a huge amount of um research for those castles which is very odd because you would imagine that everything to do with henry viii that could possibly be known has probably been written about and i would i assume that but actually these castles there's very little written about them a lot of people don't know about them academics haven't really you know studied them for many many years so it, it became a good uh niche if you like mm-hmm. and um you know it, it's got its challenges as well but i've been sort of um I've been doing that on a part-time basis with them and it's, you know, it's, it's really enjoyable.
0: And so how are you fitting all of this in? <laughs> well,
1: I could ask you the same question. You know, you're, you're the same as me. You're um, you're doing all these things. How do we fit all these things in? I mean, I've also got a 12-month-old son. I mean, that's tired dad face at the moment. That's
0: <laughs> Well, that's one step extra that I have added into the mix. So tell me, you tell me how you, you're fitting all of this
1: in. Um, well, I mean, there's 24 hours in a day, Natasha. I mean, you know, you know, no, I, I, I like to be, well, I like to be as organized as I can be and yeah. compartmentalized and, you know, try and separate everything. And, um, I mean, learning to delegate is obviously a thing, you know, you need to not try and do everything yourself. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah you know i i've never looked at what i do for a very long time i've never looked at it as work um i mean that old saying that if you can find something you enjoy for a living you you never work a day in your life so i i do genuinely enjoy construction and property and heritage so there is that about it i mean i do genuinely enjoy it and i don't you know the lines blur really but um a saying that um used to be around in the 90s which you don't really hear anymore is work hard play hard so you know we 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 work hard for a reason and um you know i have a very enjoyable social and family life so uh, that's that's the reason why i get up every day and do what i do
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i completely get it you make it mm-hmm. work you make it work so mm. let's talk about what the firstly what is the difference between heritage heritage buildings and listed buildings
1: well in a nutshell um Heritage as, a, as an overarching theme is uh, a sort of a term that's been coined over the years that a lot of academics don't actually like using, but it's, it's kind of stuck now and they kind of got to put up with it, really. But it, it, it basically means that um, if you take the old adage that we are only um, custodians of these old buildings, that they, they never really are ours. We are just mm-hmm. holding on to them for the time being and passing them on to the next generation. That's what the heritage element literally means when it comes to architecture and, and property. But in terms of uh, heritage, it generally means anything of a historic age. Um, I mean, anything, literally anything. So from you know Neolithic caves to um, you know, places like Stonehenge all the way through to even modern buildings that sometimes get listed. But in terms of listing, the listing system um, I mean, every country around the world, or not every country, but most countries around the world in the Western sphere anyway, they have a, a system of looking at preservation for historic buildings and monuments. And in England and Wales, we use the listing system. So um, we've got grade one, grade two star, and then grade three. Um, and then we used to have, um, sorry, grade Grade one listed, grade two star and grade two. We used to have three, but they got rid of three many years ago.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, that covers... Uh, buildings but then on top of that you've also got scheduled ancient monuments which can also cover churches and castles cathedrals uh, and 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 places like stonehenge again um conservation areas which is mostly to do with the external of the building um you've got uh, aomb's areas of outstanding natural beauty i'm just looking at a list now actually but there are many you know there are lots of different ways in which we look after our built heritage if you like and the listing system um is primarily for properties, and it came about um, after the Second World War when um, there was obviously lots of bomb damage. And the have you ever heard of the phrase a second gear valuation? No, it's, it's a bit of a rude term, really, but it's it's where where a valuer keeps the car in second gear and looks out and goes, yeah, that's two hundred thousand, and then keeps going.
0: Isn't that <laughs> what's happening at the moment with COVID?
1: Yeah, probably, probably. I mean, I'd say when they did that term came about was when they redid the, the um, after the poll tax rights, when they redid the council tax bans, every estate agent had to go out and look at all the properties and work out what band that they should be in. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so That's where it came from. So there was a lot of that done, not a huge amount, but there was some of that done after the war, but they had to go out and make a list, and that's where the name comes from, of all the properties that we need to protect from demolition because there was a lot of pressure after the war Mm -hmm. to demolish everything because we didn't have any money really and build lots of flats everywhere and the listing system was uh, put in place to protect the buildings and the grade ones were the really special buildings that had to be protected at all costs and you know they had to be repaired grade two star had some interest um, and then grade two is has a general interest Mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of the the, – I've got it here somewhere because I'm, I'm terrible at remembering dates, which is not very good for someone who's a historian. Um, basically, everything over 1840, so anything older than 1840, should be listed. And there are exceptions to that, stuff all through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everything between 1840 and 1940 has a degree of discretion with the local authority or historic England as to whether it should be listed. And then after 1940, very little is listed. Although there is a fair bit to this day still being listed. There's a lot of stuff from the 1980s that's currently being listed by Historic England. Um, some of the most contentious buildings that have been listed recently was uh, there was a, a block of flats in uh, Leeds that was listed because it was one of the first ever high-rise concrete internationalist style. Type of blocks of flats, they were listed. And the Lloyds building in London was listed, which was built in 1979, 1980. Which, if you've seen it to this day, I mean, it still looks modern, like futuristic almost, but that is also listed.
0: Okay. So, what would be the pros and cons of buying a listed building? Now, just as a disclaimer for everybody, I do have two in my portfolio (laughs) that are listed. And the biggest issue that I've come up against is changing the windows because they need to be rehung, and it's an Mm -hmm. ongoing battle and I now have two that are screwed shut because
1: oh dear oh dear
0: so Um, that for me mm. has been a con but you tell me what are the pros and cons of it
1: well I mean the the pros of, of owning a listed building is is the fact that you are handling a historic building that you are as I said earlier a custodian of that building and it it's listed for a reason, you know, as I said earlier, it it might just be age or it might be that someone lived there or or a certain events happened in or around it. You know, there's lots of different reasons and it's also quite interesting as a researcher to find out why your building might be listed. You know, it's, there could be a backstory there that you never thought about and it, and it gives you some provenance and that, you know, ultimately that helps the commercial value, not, not only just the social value of the property, so there's, there's a lot of things to be said about that. Um, How
0: would you find that out? How would you find out why they listed the building?
1: Oh, well, there's no sort of cut and dry reason because it was done in such haste um, back in the day. But if you went onto Historic England's website and found your listed property, it'll be on their website somewhere. Mm-hmm. It'll tell you why they think it should be listed, if you like. Okay. Um, so we have a lot of information there, but not everything. I mean, it... Um, Part of my research with the Henry VIII castles, we, we found out that one of them was demolished and the stones were reused to build a church, which was at one point at risk of demolition. And it, uh, I won't go into too much detail, but in the end they decided not to demolish this church. It was a rather crude small chapel Victorian church. And um, they didn't actually know that all of the stones were from this castle that Henry VIII had built. But if they had known that at the time, it probably would have been a cut and dry case that you could definitely not demolish it, yeah. you know? So um, there, there's all those sorts of things to do with provenance. But the reason why you would have one, you know, is, is that social value of having a, a property like that. And if you care for them properly, um, and I'll go on to that in a minute, they can have all sorts of benefits to do, you know, often they have much better ventilation, um, you know, the the modern properties and you can obviously if if your house is of a particular standard it has a particular value that can also be represented in what you can get back from your tenants because of the you know i have a um client that just buys historic buildings and it's usually commercial property and he he usually subdivides them up and rents them out to offices and and they want the kudos of having such and such manner as their office address, you know. So it, there is, there is, you know, there's stuff like that. But the negative, the downside, is, is really and truly usually associated with the maintenance. But if it is maintained properly um, by people that know what they're doing, then it will still be more expensive than traditional. Don't get me wrong, and it will require more maintenance than um, than, a, than a you know a modern building. But it, it will. Um, there are the benefits to that but in terms of the, um, the maintenance side of it is that the construction industry rapidly changed uh, at the beginning of the sort of last century and the modern materials of your concretes and your polymers um, stuff like that came into the market and it really wasn't compatible with the old way of doing things. So if you've got a, you know, a brick built building that was built prior to 1900 with soft clay bricks and, you know, lovely soft uh, non-hydraulic lime pointing, if you go and repoint that with a cementitious base mortar, um, it will cause damp in that building that will get locked in and that concrete will damage the brick. It could cause structural issues Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: you will... Accelerate any dilapidation that you had there. So, what would be a cheap, quick fix would actually cost you a lot more money in the long run. So, it's very important that when you look after older buildings, that you put the materials back in that are appropriate for the age of that building, because it is slightly more expensive, but in the long run, it will save you a lot more money.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and what about the planning process behind these these alterations? That's that's the reason in Bath that I'm just coming up against it, and just Whilst we're, doing, we're dealing with COVID, I'm like, we'll, I'll come back to these windows. We're not yeah. doing them right now. It's fine. There's no danger. Um, but what in general is the planning process behind doing these upgrades?
1: Well, the list of building consent, um, a lot of people say, oh, well, it's free. Well, you know, yes, it is. But you also need to have an architect you know, do the drawings and provide everything and ensure that what you're presenting to the council is appropriate. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you'll get a flat no and you can keep applying as much as you want. Um, but um, the, the problem with the, the planning system, which is a problem that could be, you know, put to all sorts of different planning issues, really, is that a lot of the different local authorities have different approaches so it's talking to the conservation officer for your area, if one exists, because a lot of councils don't even have them these days. Um, so you need to find out from the paying department exactly who deals with the consents for listed buildings. And you need to um, work with them to try and provide the correct answer, which I appreciate is not always easy. But, you know, they have to provide a service in that regard. So they, they need to help you out mm-hmm. because, you know, that's their job. Um, don't ever sort of forget that because, you know, I often, you know, have to chase people, that you know, oh, it's so-and-so's job. And it's like, well, hang on a minute, you know, (laughs) help help us out here. (laughs) We're we're trying to do right by the building, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: If you pull that window out and put a a plastic window, UPVC in, you're going to get a notice from the council quicker than anything. (laughs) That bit is very quick, but when you try to get help, it can often be quite slow.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's really good to know. We just keep we just keep plugging away with that. Can we talk a bit about the construction industry? Yeah. What is the state of the construction industry in the UK right now? Has this changed significantly since COVID? Uh,
1: yes. So currently, um, some of the biggest challenges, I wrote them down here earlier from actual problems I'm having at the moment. Um, it's, I'm not having much problem with staff or subcontractors generally speaking that's all okay the biggest problem at the moment seems to be materials
2: mm-hmm. so
1: there are um certain materials out there which are really difficult to obtain at the moment um for example uh, multi-finished plaster um just general plastering equipment and uh, stuff like that really difficult to get hold of um, and uh, the other one that is increasingly becoming very very difficult is uh, polycarbonate because a lot of the shops cafes banks restaurants blah 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 blah, are reopening and they want their tills behind plastic screens essentially so polycarbonate um, is required a lot of the big chains are buying that up 10 to the dozen so it means the smaller people can't get hold of stuff which means they won't perhaps be able to reopen when the big chains reopen so there's an issue there just generally speaking, to try and get hold of materials. Um, and then the other uh, issue that we, we've we got is the social distancing. So the two-metre rule, um, if you was to break it down, if you had a very large site, for example, um, the two-metre rule, generally speaking, probably wouldn't be an issue. But the issue lies where all sites are con- controlled under the CDM regulations, which means you have to provide welfare and. Drying rooms, etc. So, in terms of um, toilet provision and rest areas and things like that, you then essentially have to double what you have to supply mm-hmm. because of the two-meter rule. So you can't have as many people on site as perhaps you would normally, particularly if it's a very small, cramped site. And you, because you're then, on most of my jobs at the moment, are halving the number of people that can go onto that site. You you are having a domino effect then because things are then taking twice as long to do, which you know delays in construction. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not new. It's not new news, is it really? But this has almost created more of a delay because of this sort of social distancing. So you 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 get between a rock and a hard place because you've got to comply with the regulations that are currently in place, but then you've also got your client saying. You know, and some clients aren't being very sympathetic. Some are, don't get me wrong, but some are saying, you know, this project has to be finished by X, Y, and Z. You know, if it's a a utility organisation like a railway or a bus depot mm-hmm. or something, they need those reopened because people need to travel to work. Uh, if it's a school, you know, you're looking down the barrel and saying, well, that school has to be finished by September at the latest because you've got loads of kids coming then. Mm-hmm. So you can't run into October and November. So you're getting clients who are saying that, We will grant you an extension of time to get the works done, but then they're also not accepting liability uh, for the overrun. So they won't be paying any of your um, contra charges. So, for example, if you want extra site management fee or extra hire on the scaffolding, stuff like that. So you are really between a rock and a hard place because you want to do the job on time, but also you can't do the job on time. You can't cut corners with health and safety, but then your client probably won't pay you extra for being there for longer. So you're sort of between these two parallels at the moment. And I'm sure it will really affect some of the bigger companies who, you know, their, you know, overheads for running a site run into the hundreds of thousands.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: so if jobs overrun, it really hits their bottom line massively. And I mean, some of the big big builders are on a 1% profit margin sometimes. I mean, it can be incredibly tight. Um, So there is no movement there at all. Um, And then the other thing is with the health and safety executive, the HSE, they're the ones that are enforcing the current regulations for social distancing and all of the COVID stuff. And if you breach uh, health and safety uh, legislation, and that's for anybody doing any construction project, and they find out about it they will slap you with a fee for intervention fine which starts off at i I think it's 135 pounds an hour and then that carries on 24 7 until you fix that problem so if you've got a man up a treble ladder trying to repoint a chimney and he's hanging off of it trying to do his best you know if hse see you doing that they'll say no you need to put scaffolding up and that fine carries on until scaffolding is erected. And it can run into the thousands, you know.
2: Wow.
1: Yeah. So it, it has to be, you have to be really careful at the moment with, with everything. There's a lot of balls to juggle, and um, there's a lot of people that um, you've got to listen to, and you've got to take advice as well. Um, and just do your best, really. I mean, it, it's so unprecedented that we're all trying to do our best aren't we we mm-hmm. none of us have lived through a pandemic before no, i don't think No. you know the last one was in the 50s and i don't think it was as bad as this so it, it, do you know what i mean it, it's it's we're all just making it up as we go along almost and we don't want to fall foul from the regulations and we also don't really want to be fined or um you know given any penalties like that
0: gosh okay so essentially that cost is falling on the contractor not the person who's instructing you, or do you think that there will be a compromise, or the government will have to step in? What do you see the resolution of that being?
1: Well, it, it's very tricky because the CDM regulations are pretty. Um, I wouldn't. Well, the, the CDM re- regulations um, exist, and they, they they instruct each party: so the client, the designer, the contractor, the subcontractor. It, it, it says on there whose responsibilities are whose and when. So if you're falling foul of those regulations, then you can look it up. It will tell you what your duties are. And if you're not doing them, then you are at risk of being um, found out. I mean, this is if you have an accident or Mm -hmm. they do a spot visit, which they they do from from time to time. Um, So you have to be really, really careful. Um, And all of this COVID protection gets folded into that. Um, and it's all right, the Prime minister saying, well, I'm going to look at fines and all this sort of stuff. But well, actually, you know, that's probably personal fines. This is a commercial thing. So it's, you know, you have to be very, very careful.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think that this is going to impact the development pipeline for years to come? How do you think this is going to look long term? Um,
1: well, I mean... They used to do this very crude um, analysis where they used to do crane counting in London. Didn't they? Yeah. they
2: used
1: to to count all the cranes. Well, I don't know how many cranes are up there at the moment, but someone goes up there every week and counts them. Um, but you know, prior to this, um, there was a sort of—I wouldn't say it was a boom—because it was so many firms in construction, in my opinion, went to the wall uh, during the recession. So, with a even a modest uptick of interest because there was fewer firms around i think it made more of a sort of a boom i don't like using the word but it made more of a a, an uptick than perhaps there would have been if all of the firms that went bust had survived you know a lot of people just retired and just had enough really because you know houses weren't selling people couldn't get mortgages and the, the government at the time stopped spending so schools hospitals weren't having money spent on them as much as they used to and capital budgets were slashed and you know, so it, it was a awful time, really. But um, when you look at it now, and you read in the papers like from last year, when there were so many high rises being approved in London, um, and they hadn't started on site, and you looked at the sort of industry indicators to show you how many planning permissions had been granted, and it kept going up, and how many schemes were coming forward. I mean. Some of the, you know most of those I should imagine will probably still go because it is a process, at the moment we're not really feeling the pinch so much because construction is always mm-hmm. a delayed effect it, you know when the recession eight happened it wasn't until sort of nine you know twenty ten before we actually felt the pinch yeah because um, it's just always delayed, budgets are approved, and it just goes on and on and on but um in terms of uh current projects, I think the way in which we all work um, and live is maybe looked at i mean if we all to a degree can work from home will we all more of us work from home so will we need so many offices I mean a a, a surveyor friend of mine works at Canary Wharf and he's saying that there's a lot of uh, his clients are saying actually we won't take that extra floor we don't need the extra space so you know do we need lots of offices in the middle of London you know and it had a knock on effect because I do a lot with the railways and of course a lot of them are at capacity every day. People are sitting on the floor when they go to mm-hmm. London, whereas with now there will be less people, perhaps traveling. Yep. So they may have a knock-on effect with what they're spending. So I think everything will just adjust as it has before. And it, you know, when they throw the pieces up in the air, we don't really know quite where they'll land. But I'm sure things will be different when they do. It's just how we adapt and respond to that, really.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you think that this is going to? impact the banks with developers needing to take out finance for longer because they need to prop up these construction product projects for a longer period of time how do you think that's gonna have an impact
1: well, I, I i mean i i can't see the banks um i mean every bank is different but i can't see them uh, giving more money to this situation unless it's you know really critical or a business case can be put to them because before all this happened they weren't particularly that Willing to lend, were they? I mean, they weren't sort of throwing money at people before, <laughs> but, you, know, you know. Um, it, I don't know. I mean, the government is being very generous at the moment with grants. Um, as you have helped me with some, you know, so there is that avenue as a last resort if you can't get funding from your bank. But you know, the government grants you have to repay them on a pretty short turnaround, so um. Sorry, not the grants, the, the loans that the government is doing. You've got to pay them back pretty sharpish if you do take a government mm-hmm.
2: loan. Out. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but they are arranged really quickly. I mean, if, if you're looking at that uh, COVID recovery 50K loan that the government are doing, that's interest free for 12 months. You will get that in your banking account within two or three days. I mean that is really quick. I mean, yeah. how have you have you ever seen a mortgage or anything like that ever approved that quickly? Enough? But
0: even <laughs> but even it's the steps to applying. I was looking at it um, just because I have clients asking me about it, so I was like, okay, yeah. well, let's have a look at this for NC Real Estate. I did four clicks and I applied and didn't even realise. Yeah.
1: I looked at it myself. I'm like, oh, hang on a minute. I think I've just, I've just applied for fifty grand here. Do I need it?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, how did I? How do I manage that? Like,
1: yeah. Uh, so that is a positive thing, really, because if you positive. are really desperate for money, um, and you have got a serious issue, or you know you you have got a development that requires that final push to get it over the line, then that is a perfect way for you to fund it, really. Yeah. In a nutshell, at least it gives you twelve months breathing space, and if you want to refinance it or whatever, you can do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I think you pretty much got to pay it back within five or six years, or sooner.
0: Six years. Um, at 6
1: years 2.5%
0: definitely. which is actually
1: yeah it's not a lot but it is a, a repayment lot. thing isn't yeah, it you have it is, got yeah, a yeah. Um, you know so there is that about it but i don't know the the banks are you know uh, well you know what banks are like it, it's it's um
0: well they're I, rubbing their hands together because yeah. the government's backing them like how often yeah. does a government put their own self on the on the back of these loans
1: yeah it's yeah it's
0: unheard of you take it wouldn't you
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. I mean, bank shares at the moment in England are incredibly cheap. I mean, if there was ever a share, you go, I'm not giving out share advice, but if, if you were going to buy some shares, surely bank shares right now, with how cheap they are compared to what they used to be.
0: <laughs> I mean, potentially. Yeah. Again, I, I just dabble in stocks and shares just as a bit of fun. But
1: yeah, me too. Me too.
0: Yeah. Mm. So, final question. We've talked about it. We're dealing with a global pandemic. How do you see this impacting? I'm going to say the built environment. So let's encompass it all. How do you use, if you had a crystal ball, how do you see this impacting the built environment going forward?
1: Um, It's a difficult question to uh, answer, really, because um, in many ways it won't change much. Uh, As I said before, I think it will obviously change the way in which we work.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um and the way in which we move around perhaps but you know people will still need to live somewhere people still need schools um and hospitals and things like that and there has been a uh sort of an incremental population increase over the last few years and when you apply that to the schools they're under massive pressure for september placements because um they have got you know an increased number of kids going to school that for this year for example and that was the same last year and the year before so um spending has to be undertaken to um vital services like that so that there has to be an industry where things are being done things are being maintained you know the, no other regulations you know we, we were talking only about listed buildings there's no you know they haven't relaxed any of the laws around that or sort of cdm as we also discussed so um the challenges are still there it's just how we um, adapt to it going forward, mm-hmm. and you know the the smart money would say is the quicker we get over this um, the better it will be i mean that's just a you know it's a silly way of looking at it, but you know if this carries on for you know two three years, then it's going to really really cause a lot of problems across every sort of part of mm-hmm. society, so it's in all of our interests to um, stay at home and make sure we you know don't just go to the beach because your friend's down there and everything else that some Mm -hmm. people would (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) yeah the quicker we can start maneuvering back to some sort of normality i know that the economist put out a study about what would happen if even if we just opened as a 90 percent economy yeah it's not it's not a bright picture so no. It's looking at how you can open everything up but within, within mm. the confines of what we are facing.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it is a challenge and, um, you know, we've had recessions before and we have eventually got over them and, you know, we pretty much all the money that they kind of recouped paying the country's debts off over the last however many it was since, what, 2008 Mm-hmm. Oh no! No, it was 2010, wasn't it? The government change. um Pretty much all that money's been spent on COVID, so there's that. Uh, <laughs> um You know, you've also a lot of people don't even mention Brexit anymore. I mean, if if uh that happens, and you know, it should, probably will do, and they change the regulations, and there's that we've got to adapt to our way of living again because you know, going back to CDM for example, that's quite strict, but that is a EU directive, so. I'm not saying we should drop the CDM regulations because it saves people's lives, but it could be adapted to be perhaps, you know, different if
0: mm-hmm. they wanted
1: to. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's challenges like that because laws will change and, and the way we do things will change. But it's just the way in which we react to it, really, and um, keep on carrying on, really.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Well, Chris, it's been phenomenal having you on the podcast. Thank you for coming. No, thank you really 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 appreciate it if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast please make sure that you rate and review it because it helps more people find this podcast and also i really love reading your reviews so please do make sure that you do that thank you so much for listening to us today i cannot wait to catch up with you again soon